0: Ruth chapter 1, verses 10 through 22. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? God, we thank you for your word and for the truth that's in it. We thank you that all scripture comes from you and that we know that you chose this um, to be a part of what we get to study. And so we thank you for this scripture. Thank you for Ryan and for your gift of giving him the ability to teach well. And so we pray your blessing over him this morning and pray for your spirit to move in us, that your gift of the spirit would allow us to hear your word and understand it well. And we pray that in all of it that we would bring glory to your name. In Christ's name, amen.
1: Last week we introduced a series that's the book of Ruth. It's this little narrative that's that's tucked right after the book of Joshua and right before the book of 1 Samuel. And it's, it's this story, this vignette of a family and what happens to them during the time of the judges, which was this dark time in the history of God's people. There was a famine uh, that went on and... And basically, uh, the, the, the father, Elimelech, uh, the husband to Naomi, and they had a couple boys, uh, Milan and uh, Chilion. And, and basically, they decide to leave the promised land uh, to go to Moab. And we just, we, last week, we looked at this idea of, of what that would have meant for them. It wasn't like moving to Charlotte for a promotion. It was much different than that at this time. It was, it was like leaving God, leaving his people, leaving the promises for the greener grass of some other God and some other place. And so when they left, sure enough, um, tragedy struck their lives. And their lives were absolutely wrecked. Um, and it ended up with, um, you know, they, they were in Moab for 10 years. And in that 10 years, all three of the men died for different reasons, but they'd gotten married before they, um, before they passed away. And now Naomi, uh, this widow, now has two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, who are with her. They're Moabites. She's an Israelite, and they're in the land of Moab. And, and, and the, the, the land of Moab is, is literally means, who's your daddy? That's what it means. And the reason why the land of Moab is called that. Is because uh, it, was, it was from a, a, a dark, another dark port part in, in Israel's history where um, lots um, lots, basically ancestral um, son was born um, out of a, a dark period of time, and, and that's why the land is called "Who's Your Daddy?" Um, and <laughs> it, literal translation, Hebrew, of course, there, um, basically pretty close. Anyway, dark part in the history of God's people here, Ruth. Naomi and Orpah find themselves, and, and what, what uh, Ruth and, and uh, Na, uh, Orpah want to do is they want to go with Naomi. They don't want to leave her. They have this bind to her, and that's where we pick up uh, this week. And the question is, I left you with a cliffhanger last week, will they stay or will they go back to Bethlehem? Uh, Naomi has heard that there is, there's bread back in Bethlehem, in the house of bread, and they want to go back to the promised land now that the circumstances are better, even though their lives have been destroyed. And the girls want to go with Naomi, but she says, no, I don't want you to. So that's where we pick up today. And, and as we get into that, I just have a, a question for you. And, and the question is this, what's the defining narrative of your life? What is it in your life that, that tends to overshadow every other part of your story? What is, the, what is the pain in your story that makes you squirm when you think about it? You know, respond in ways that you never would have thought you would respond. My parents were uh, going through a divorce when I was younger. I was about eight years old, seven or eight. And I didn't know what to do with what I was, I was feeling at the time. Uh, it, was a, it was a weight of emotion and pain that I, that I didn't have a category for yet. And so I can remember, you know, when I was younger, I would, I would, I could think of ways to divert the pain. So when people would ask me, they'd come up to me with this kind of heartfelt attitude and say, Hey, Brian, how you doing? And I, I can remember saying, you know, I'm fine. Everything's good. You know, I get two Christmases, you know, I've got two houses, two bedrooms, two sets of friends. Everything's fine in my life is what I would tell them. And I was... I was just diverting the pain from my story because I didn't know how to deal with it. Have you ever been in a place like that before? Where the pain the, the pain that you feel is, is so deep that you don't know what to do with it. And so you, you just try to avoid it and squirm and you, you try to get it off of you however you can. I think this passage that we're looking at today shows us a, a really beautiful reality that I think everyone in this room will benefit from. And, and it's this, that we... In Jesus, we can feel pain and still have hope. Two things that our mind, in our mind, two categories in our mind that are often diametrically opposed. Hope and pain. We never see those things coming together or feeding off of each other. And I think this morning, we find ourselves in this story that we're looking at. This story that really begins to be about Ruth and Naomi and their relationship. And the question is, uh, this, you know, we, we know that we relate to Naomi. That we say, you know, I don't want to deal with this, I just want to cut all ties, I just want to get out of this place. We know what it's like to deal with tremendous loss. But, but the question is, will we let ourselves relate to Ruth? Because that's the work that Jesus came to do in us. To be able to have redemption and hope in the midst of pain and suffering and trial, will we let... God do that work in us. So now at this time, you know Naomi had had tasted this this long and deep love that, that she spoke of when she blessed her girls last week. Even though she wasn't acting like it at the time, she knew who God was. She knew that she could come back home to Bethlehem, even though she ran away. That that love in the Hebrew is is this word has said, and and it really it really translates like this like a loyal covenantal love, a love that sticks around when everything else leaves. She had experienced this from God, and now her, her daughter-in-law, Ruth, had experienced the same thing. And, uh, and, and what, we, what we see in this is that this long, loyal love that sticks around when every other indicator of God's presence is God, is what God wants for us. Now, it's a love that's spoken about in Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, in, in Hebrews chapter 2, if you've got a Bible, I want you to flip over to that real quick. Um, in Hebrews chapter 2, we begin to put the pieces together on how Jesus suffered and what that means for us and what are the implications of this. And as you're turning there, I can remember this when this passage rested on my heart uh, in, a, in a deep way. I was in a seminary class. You know, in a seminary class, you get all clinical and you're, you're thinking about the nuances of the language and you're, you're, you're so much, you know, more studious and all that kind of stuff. And, and sometimes what happens is, is you, get, you fill your head up with so much knowledge about the Bible that it never gets down to your heart. And we were sitting in class debating one night, and, uh, and this guy was talking about the, the humanity of, of Jesus. And, and one of the things he said was, you know, I don't know that Jesus was really like us. I mean, he was fully God and fully man, but was he really fully man? I mean, did he really feel what I feel? Did he really feel what my friends and neighbors and family members feel? And he had concluded that he wasn't really like us. And I can remember beginning to boil inside of me. Because here's the thing, I kind of based my whole life on this reality that Jesus came to be like me to save me. And in Hebrews chapter 2, when I was reading it that night, I stood up in the middle of the class. I don't, know, I don't think I stood on a chair, but, I mean, it was like this. I, I got out my Bible, Hebrews chapter 2, and I, and I looked at this guy and I said, if what you're saying is true, then I'm out. I don't want to be a part of the church. I don't want to be a Christian anymore. If what you're saying is true, but luckily it's not. And here's what Hebrews chapter 2 says. I don't know if you should do that or not, but that's what I did that night. Hebrews chapter 2 says this. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, meaning Jesus, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. This is the key. Right now, we don't see everything in subjection to King Jesus. This is the source of our pain, isn't it? We don't see Him ruling and reigning. He seems reckless and out of control if He's a king of our hearts and our lives. We don't see everything in subjection to Him. He seems reckless. But we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death. He might taste pain for everyone, for it was fitting that he for whom, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should be the founder of their salvation and make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering, through pain. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And that's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. So think about this. In our lives, we don't see everything in subjection to King Jesus. This is what makes us squirm. This is what makes us run. This is what makes us not trust Jesus when things aren't going well. And, and, and it's why uh, the divorce of parents, the, the betrayal uh, of a friend, the, the injustice that surrounds us to whole cultures of people, the diagnosis of an incurable disease, the wanderings of our children, the addictions of our souls cause us so much pain because we don't see everything in subjection to Jesus. But thankfully, what Hebrews chapter 2 tells us is that there is another side to the story. It's not that we just don't see everything in subjection to Jesus. That's one side of it. But it's that Jesus submitted himself to a father that probably seemed out of control at the time as well. He submitted himself to to a father that when he stepped back, he let his son suffer more deeply than you and I will ever feel. We'll never feel the pain that Jesus felt because we're not perfect in our suffering. But Jesus somehow does something in us when we suffer pain, when we feel pain. We relate to Jesus at a deeper level than anything else we could ever experience in life would bring us. That's that's part of what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8. I think it's Romans chapter 8 when he talks about this idea of the fellowship of suffering. There's something that God does in the middle of our pain and our hearts to deepen us that he cannot do in any other way. And that's why at the end of this this passage in Hebrews chapter 2, he says that's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Like in their weakness, in their pain, Jesus calls you brother, he calls you sister, because you relate to him deeper than than any other time in your life. And and it it gives us this kind of instance where we see Jesus kind of knife-fighting the devil. That's the way I think about it sometimes. The battle that He's won for us that we've sang about this morning. And it's almost like Jesus is standing, standing, looking down at the devil saying, if you want to get to them, you have to go through Me first. That's the foundation I want to lay this morning for us to be able to see what's happening in this narrative between Ruth and Naomi. Because it's this story of unlikely redemption Through incredible pain. So, the big idea of where we're going this morning is this. Through Jesus, we can embrace pain without being defined by it. Let me say it again. Through Jesus, we can embrace pain without being defined by it. Do you know what I mean when I say defined by it? Like it becomes your narrative, it becomes your story. You're the person that that happened to, you're the victim of that. It becomes the definition of who you are, almost like a vow that you've made with God. And you can't imagine a life outside of that. Jesus Christ, because of what he's done on the cross and the pain that he suffered, enables us to live a life, not avoiding that pain, but live live a life of redemption through the pain. So let's dig in together here. Ruth chapter 1, verse 10. i got two points I want to share with you today. The first one's this. Only faith allows us to embrace loss. Only faith allows us to embrace loss. And what I mean by that is that it's impossible for you to enter into loss and pain without faith. You will always do something to avoid it unless you've got faith in something beyond what you can see and feel. We see this in in Ruth chapter 1, verse 10 here. Let me read it again to remind you what's going on here. and, and they said to her, This is, uh, this is Ruth and Orpah. Uh, they say this to Naomi No, we're going to return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb? She begins to draw up this, this circumstance, this situation of why they might want to come with her. She said, Do I have sons uh, in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. She did let her go. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said this, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. It's getting heated here. And, And Ruth and Orpah are committed to Naomi, not just because they're friends, but at least for Ruth. Think about this. Her life has been eternally changed through Naomi. Even though Naomi and Elimelech and the boys are living in Moab, they've still got this heart of Israel inside of them. That God's chosen people, they have access to Him, even though they're living in disobedience. And, and Ruth has picked up on this. She's been changed by her relationship. In Naomi's darkest hour, Ruth has been changed, and Naomi can't see it. She can't see how God might actually be using All of this death, all of this suffering, all of this pain for something bigger than she can see. And she says, Let's just cut our ties now. Just go back home. I've caused you enough pain. And she she says, Turn back and she draws up the scenario. Look, it's impossible. She only sees one way that this would happen if she could somehow provide sons for the girls to marry, that they might want to be with her. And finally, Ruth just speaks up and she says, All right, listen, Naomi, I've been converted. I'm not the same person. I don't worship the Moabite God, Kibosh, anymore. So I really can't go home. That's not my home anymore, Naomi. I worship your God. I worship Yahweh. I can't go back to that because that's not who I am anymore. And I know you can't see that right now, but I've only got one place to go, and it's wherever you're going. That's the only place I have to go. It's the only home that I have because your God is now my God. I don't know if you can see that, but that's what's happening Here, I want to meet the family of God. I want to worship Yahweh in the promised land. Is that okay with you? She finally just gets real with her. And says, stop being so self-absorbed. And see that God has done something deeper than you could ever imagine through my heart and in your pain. Because we have this um, expectation and idol of comfort, comfort in our lives, the Antichrist for most of us is suffering. It's, it's, the, it's the thing that, that we can't imagine that God would ever want to, to use. But it is the thing that he uses, he promises to use throughout the pages of history and Scripture. We don't have a category for God's work in our pain. Have you ever stopped to consider that through your suffering and through your pain that God might be saving people? Have you Have you ever stopped? I mean, I'm sure Naomi hadn't thought about that. But it's exactly what God used in Ruth's heart, the middle of the pain. The losses that we experience are intended to drive us to something beyond our experience, beyond our feelings. And we experience these deaths and losses as a foretaste of life without hope, life without forgiveness. Life without Jesus covering our lives. So I I, I want to look quickly at just three potential reactions to loss and pain in your life. And we actually see these right out of the text today. There's probably more reactions in this, but these are a few good ones here. The the first one is this. Isolation. Isolation. And I want to define isolation in this situation like this. It's feeling pain without hope. That's what happens in your life when you isolate yourself is you feel pain and you don't have hope and so you go and you bear it upon your own shoulders because you don't want to let anyone else in. And you don't want to be a burden to anyone. You don't want anyone else to feel what you're feeling. And, and if, if, this, if this long-lasting covenant love, if, the, if this loyal love is real in our lives, the question is, who will it be that sticks around in our lives when we can't pull it together? When we are broken beyond repair and we cannot mend the pieces, we can't keep ourselves together, our makeup's running, we can't keep it together because of the pain and the loss that we feel. Who will stick around? Because that is the essence of this his said love, this long love that we've been talking about. I can, I can, I can think about multiple instances in my own life and the life of others who've experienced this. You know, you're in a conversation and, and someone gets choked up because something as they're, they're describing has touched their heart and, and they're emotional about it and they say, I'm sorry. As they say, I'm sorry. You've done that before too probably. I've done it. And the reason that we do that is because we think we're not supposed to feel pain. We think we're not supposed to be broken. We think that it's not presentable, that somehow maybe God's not using that and Naomi, in this, in this passage here, she's got this exit strategy. She's got this, this, this place, and, and it's this. If she were honest, she'd rather be dead. That, 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 if she was here with us today, that's what she would have said in that moment. I'd rather be dead. Why didn't I just get to die with them? And so she's cutting off all of her ties and doing life on her own from here on out. It's just easier that way. There's less collateral damage. I don't have to explain myself. I don't have to explain my feelings. I don't have to be exposed before others, so I'm just going to cut these ties. Just this week, a friend of mine I was talking with on the phone uh, was dealing with um, post-traumatic, you know, stress uh, from from a tour that he did in the Middle East. He's in the military. And He actually, I, I just found out this week, he, he actually earned a Purple Heart when he was there. It was pretty incredible. Um, and and he told me for years after he got back, um, he he would wake up every single night and have a panic attack. He'd just wake up and he couldn't hold it together. He'd go into the other room. His wife didn't know. No one knew what was happening. He woke up every single night for like three years having these panic attacks. And he, he never told anyone. And it wasn't until he faced what was going on in his heart in the company of God's people before God's face that he began to experience the healing power of the gospel in his heart. We, we cannot do life alone. God in his grace will throw something so heavy at you. He will, he, will, he, will, he will orchestrate something that will happen in your life that will be so heavy that you can't do it alone. And you'll reach a breaking point because he loves us that much. And you got to ask yourself the question: will I handle it on my own, or will I have a hope in the middle of this? Will I I trust that God can work in the middle of this? And will I expose myself before others and feel pain in front of others so that God might give me healing, as James tells us to pray? He says, Confess your sins to others, in the company of others before God, so that you may be healed. So many of us just live these isolated lives where we do it alone. And Jesus came to set us free from that. The the second thing that we see happening here, another possible potential reaction, is this bitterness. So what's bitterness? Bitterness is, in in the context of this story anyway, is is feeling prolonged pain in in isolation. You, You feel it for so long that you begin to become numb to the source of what's going on. And you become numb. The Bible would say you have a hard heart. It just goes beyond anything that we can feel, and we just stop feeling, and you start to turn bitter. Now, Naomi goes back uh, in verse 20 uh, that we read earlier, and she gets to, to Bethlehem, and, and she, she, she walks up to the city gates in Bethlehem, and she's got Ruth with her at this time. And, and when people see her, you know, there's probably a lot of chatter kind of going around. You know, they see her coming up, is that Naomi? Now, Naomi's name means pleasant. And they call her out by name, and she says, listen, that's not my name anymore. Call me Mara because I'm bitter. And the Lord has dealt, he's dealt with me in a way that has made me bitter. This is what she says. She said, I believe that's what defines me now. My name is no longer pleasant. Don't call me that. Don't let yourself get too close to me. I'm damaged goods. I went away full and I came back empty. What God has done to me cannot be redeemed. Now some of us have this identity crisis when it comes to the pain that we've experienced and we have become numb and bitter. And if we're honest, we would say change my name. I've got a new name now. And it's it's X, Y, and Z because all that stuff's happened to me and I don't think God can redeem it. And when we let... When we let those things define our life, it is the enemy's territory. It is his playground. Now, the interesting thing that I find about the book of Ruth is, at the end of the book, um, Naomi's name is not Mara. It's Naomi. She she wanted that to define her life because she thought that was the only way forward. That was the only way forward is that her experiences defined her, and she would isolate herself, and she'd just be bitter until she died. But that's not what God does. When we fail to grieve our loss, our losses, our pain properly, church, we become bitter. Bitter beddies, right? We become bitter. And isolation is often the source of how we become bitter, because when you're in the dark night of your soul, you need other people to show you where the light is, because you can't see it yourself. And that's what the, that's why Jesus gives us his people his bride his church so that we can remind each other the source of life and light in the middle of the dark moments. The only way out of bitterness is suffering in community. You know if if we don't let ourselves break we 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 just become fake. If we don't let ourselves break before other people, we become fake. I mean, some of you guys have, you know, you, you got fine china in your house, anybody? We don't have it because we have four kids, but I, I've heard that it's nice stuff, okay? You got like fine china in your house, right? And, 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 and here's the thing. Most of the time, you might eat on that like on Thanksgiving Day, maybe, unless the crazy relatives come over and you just leave it on the shelf. But you've got it on this shelf and it looks nice. But the thing is, you never get it out you never get it out of the cabinet and why because you're so afraid of breaking the dishes that you just leave them on the shelf so you don't even know if they're real or not maybe you just need to go home today and just break one of those dishes to see it's real right no no seriously though when is the last time though that you let yourself break have you ever have you ever wondered why the tears come when you think about certain things Maybe God's sovereign over that. and Maybe He made your body feel pain. So why do you restrict it? Why do you control it? Why do you manage it? When is the last time you let yourself break over the pain that you've experienced in your life? This is, this is the last kind of potential reaction I want to talk about. It's lament. And, you know, it's, it's this word in the Bible that actually has its own book, Lamentations. But it is something that we talk about and actually experience so, uh, you know, not very often. We don't experience it much. And lament is this, in the context of this, is feeling pain with hope. Letting yourself feel the pain. Uh, Lament is a a passionate expression of of sorrow, uh, of loss. And we can only let ourselves be broken like this and be broken with others when uh, when there lies the hope that we can be put back together in the middle of it. That's the only way we'll let ourselves lament. I think I've failed to see in this story the amount of heartache that Ruth must have felt. You know, it's all about Naomi in in the first chapter, but Ruth experienced nearly the same amount of loss. They didn't have children at the time, but she lost her husband. I mean, basically right off the honeymoon. You know, it wasn't very long at all. And here she, she is a widow as well. The fact was uh, that this wasn't the final chapter of Ruth's life, and she saw the same amount of hope for Naomi. Sometimes when you enter into lament together, you enter into the pain together, you're able to help people that can't see the light, even though you feel it and you can see the hope. The reason that we need each other, church, is that we are prone to isolation, but, but genuine lament never happens in isolation. It's always a corporate thing that we experience with others. Because we cannot see and remember hope on our own. And that's why God gives us each other. So so that's what we see going on with Naomi initially here. Let's let's kind of flip to the second point here that I want to make. Um, And it's this. We've already hit on it. We learn to love through loss. Loss and pain and suffering are the training wheels of actually learning what it's like to love. Let me read the rest of this to you. Ruth 1, 16 through 22. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. I'm not going to do it. For where you will go, I'll go. Where you'll lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. So, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts from me. Now, a lot of times, we, we've heard that verse before if you've been in church any amount of time. A lot of times we think about that verse in the context of friendship. And, and that's certainly a part of it. But it's not like they were just buddies and they're like, man, we're, you know, we're gonna be best friends. God's love was holding them together in the middle of a dark, dark time. But that's what's beautiful about it. Jesus is the one that's beautiful in this. Not Naomi and Ruth. I mean, they get to, they get to be a part of experiencing God's love but it's really God in the middle of this. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go, she's still bitter at this time. When she she saw this, she said no more. So the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, it was about 50 miles away, the whole town was stirred because of them. You've got this Moabite woman and you've got Naomi who's been gone for 10 years. It's probably a sight to see. And the women said, is this Naomi? Naomi. She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitter with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her. She returned to the country, from the country of Moab and they came into Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So, so we see that going on there. And what, what I want to take from this scripture is I, want, I just want to look at two different types of love to close us out here. One is transactional love, and one is transformational love, okay? So let's start with transactional love. What is transactional love? This is what we see going on in the first part of the the message that we looked at today. Um, When we lean into our losses, God moves us from transactional love to more of a transformational love. Transactional love is, is like this. It's calculated. It makes sense on paper. An accountant can say that checks out. That's calculated love. It says, I'm your family as long as my son is alive. It says, my sons have died. You no longer have need of me. I no longer have to serve you. You should go back home. Who are we kidding? We're three widows. We'll never survive. That's transactional love. You you can fill in those blanks in your own life. You've experienced it before. It's this quid pro quo kind of love where where you say, you do this for me, I do that for you, that's the way it's going to be. Transactional love. Transactional love says, I'm proud of my kids when they behave. As long as you meet my expectations, we can be in community together. But when Naomi finds herself alone in a foreign country as a widow, transactional love has... No category for her life. She's hopeless. She's destitute. God's distance himself from her. Na- Naomi failed to see that Ruth was God's gift to her life in the middle of her pain. She failed to get the message of what was going on. Transactional love is kind of what Peter, the, the uh, Apostle Peter, thought uh, jesus came into this world to do you know he thought in john 16 you see this passage where where jesus begins to tell his disciples after he's done some miracles he says oh by the way guys i must be killed and i'm going to rise on the third day and and peter says that can't happen jesus that's not how this story ends You're not going to die. You're going to be with us forever. You're going to be the king. You're going to rule in power. Everybody's going to bow their knee. That's how this thing's supposed to happen, Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and he says, get behind me, Satan. That's what he says to him because he thought that, that Jesus came for transactional love, but he didn't come for that. He came for something so much deeper. Every time we try to make sense of our pain without the cross, we are applying transactional love to our hearts and our lives and to the people that we're around. If if, if love doesn't somehow take you to the cross, it's not the kind of love we're talking about here. If it it somehow can deal on the human surface level, it's not transformational love, it's transactional. C.S. Lewis said it like this in in his work, The Four Loves. He he says this, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will be wrung, and possibly, I could add, probably broken. Not that I'm trying to add anything to C.S. Lewis or anything, right? But um, if you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. But here's the deal it won't change the way that you want it to. He says this it will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Does love take you to the place of vulnerability? Or you just keep it buttoned up, not letting anyone in? Because I can tell you one thing. Lewis says it here. Your heart will be changing, just not the way you want it to, if that's your approach. That's transactional love. Let's look at transformational love here. This is where God took Ruth to. In, 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 in one sixteen we see this here. We see, the, we see the implications of God's love coming upon her life. She says to Naomi, for where you will go, I will go. Doesn't, th- th- where you're headed doesn't matter. and Where you will lodge, I will lodge. Your people, they're going to be my people. Your God, my God. Where you'll die, I will die. And there I'll be buried. And if anything but death separates us, You know, it's not going to happen. So she looks at Naomi and says this on the road to Bethlehem, on the road to the promised land, on the road to this foreign country where everybody's going to be looking down their nose at Ruth. You're not supposed to be here. You're a Moabite. Don't you know the history of our people? Looking down their nose at her. But she says, it doesn't matter. I've I've met God. I've met Yahweh. I've met Jesus. It changes everything. This is what gospel friendship looks like. It's centered on the person of Christ and his love flowing through us. It says that there is something holding us together that's far deeper than anything I've experienced and and far more beautiful than anything that I can really see right now. Have you been to this place before? Have you had this type of a friendship where you're vulnerable and you see Jesus? You help each other see Jesus. Have you ever experienced this before? Because New City, this is what we're going after. I'm not saying everybody's going to be best friends in here. But this ought to be a theme and a weave throughout the life of our people if we're going to be what God's called us to be. This is what it looks like to live in this gospel love. And in this brokenness, we learn to lament together. Now, you know... um, you know what it feels like to learn to lament like like this is where the the place in your life where you where you you just you say you know what I'm gonna let myself be broken in front of other people I'm not gonna protect myself this time you know what you know what it feels like to learn to lament check out this that's me skydiving this is what oh yeah (laughs) this is what it feels like to learn to lament now you this this picture is like from 2008 you the quality is but th- that's a guy on my back, and I'm the guy on the bottom. And they, they teach you when you go skydiving, like, the technique. And they say, like, tuck your legs up, arms back, head up like this. And as you can see, as soon as we jumped out of the plane, and, and I'll say this, it was not a perfectly good airplane. It was, we needed to jump out of that thing. It was, but when we jumped out, I just lost all sense of what we had learned. And I, all I'm thinking as I'm looking down and disregarding all the instruction is, how long do we have to fall before this parachute opens? <laughs> like, is this thing gonna open? And I'm just looking as Earth is crashing into us, going down. And then the, the instructor he, he helps me out here and he pulls my he pulls my head back because I've got this guy videoing me that I've paid like hundred bucks to video because I'm never gonna do this again. And uh, and then and then, then there I am. I'm like all oh, like woo! yeah. I'm like all oh, faking it till I make it acting like I'm excited about this 40-second free fall, but the reality is this. I am anxiously waiting for the moment of relief that will come, hopefully, when the parachute opens. Nobody that jumps out of an airplane really likes free falling. They're terrified. This is what it's like to learn to lament a free fall into God's arms. And sometimes the fall seems like, is he ever going to catch me. And what you do in those moments is you get this tunnel vision. On the the issue at hand for me in this, it was the approaching earth. (laughs) You you tunnel in on the pain and you don't let anyone else in and you can't lament. So what would would it look like for you to jump out of a plane today and lament? What what would it look like for you to let yourself break in the context of others or to say, I'm going to do this in my life. I'm going to have a plan for this. this is going to be the, 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 the M.O. moving forward. I'm not doing this on my own anymore. The promise of God, God's love in our pain is how he transforms us. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 4. I want to read it really quick for us as we close out. He, he says this, <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 4, 7-12. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Now, let's just stop right there. A treasure in a jar of clay. That makes like zero sense. Have you ever like made something at the, you know, the, the, the clay place and painted it or whatever? Like it's like a miracle when my kids make those if they ever actually get home, right? I mean, they just, they're so fragile, they break so much. God, what, what Paul is writing about here is he says this is what Jesus has done. He's come and he's put this treasure in this jar of clay, this, this, this vessel that can be broken and shattered. Why has he done that? Why didn't he lock it up in Fort Knox? Why has he done that? He goes on to say this. So that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We can't say, I did it. I got through that. Look at me. Yeah. We can't do that. He says he puts this treasure in jars of clay. And we're afflicted in every way, but somehow we're not crushed. We're perplexed. What a word. But not driven to despair. Persecuted but somehow we don't feel forsaken by God. Struck down, not destroyed. Always carrying in us the body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. He's saying he's put us, he, he's made our lives like these pots, these, these vessels that can break, and he's put this unimaginable treasure in our hearts, a life that we are loved by God, and the only way that it is displayed perfectly, it's like, it's like setting a diamond out. You ever, you ever wonder how those diamonds look so amazing in the stores? Because they got all these lights all over the place, Right? This is like what he's doing in our lives is that through suffering, when when our lives break and and they crack open a, a bit, you can see the beauty of what God's done a little more deeply than you could if they were just all put together. It's a miracle in this story that we've looked at today that Naomi continues to show up for life day after day. This passage doesn't say to us it feels like death is at work. It feels like God might be doing something. No, no, no. It says... Death is at work in us so that life can come to you. So that life can come to you. How is that possible? Here's the reality, church. We are defined by the resurrection, not the grave. We're defined by the resurrection and not the grave. And because of that, we can be broken because we know that we will live. Through Jesus, we can embrace pain and not be defined by it. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for this, this church. Lord, I thank You for the beauty of what You are doing in and among the people here. Lord, would you, would you open us up a little bit today? But I pray for those in this room that have experienced a level of pain uh, that is unbearable for them. Would You... Surround them with your love and your people today. And Father, will you help us be broken with one another so that we can all see a little bit more Jesus shining through the broken vessels that we are. Lord, I'm thankful for this story of Ruth and the redemption that it shows us. Would you help us to glean from it as we go forward? It's in Jesus' name, amen.